Hey there, it's time for another bonus episode of the Factory Podcast. Today's episode is another narration that we've been working on um, of the Warhol book by Blake Gopnik. And today's episode is from the years 1952 to 54. And this is when Andy was ages 24, 25, and 26. And I'm kind of at the top here. It says that this is going to be about the Hugo Gallery and an homage to Capote, the cats, the first boyfriend, and the first wig. And then there's a quote at the top that says, I knew things was good, but I didn't know you had a pussy. (laughs) So something tells me this is going to be a good episode. I have not read this ahead of time, so it's always a surprise for me, too. So uh, (laughs) we will see how it goes. I I know before this podcast was always marked as clean, but I noticed that Apple Podcasts um, actually changed the rating to explicit. I guess we've said too many bad words, so that was kind of funny. And, you know, it gives us a little street credit, right? Maybe. No. <laughs> okay, so anyways, here we are, 1952 to 1954. I used to get very mad at him because I thought he wasn't really utilizing all his talents, and he really had so much more to offer than just the commercial kinds of stuff, recalled Leela Davies, Warhol's roommate from the commune on 103rd Street. And he, you know, kind of shrugged and said, yeah, but I need to make money, and I need to be successful. By the summer of 1952, Warhol clearly felt he was doing well enough at filling both needs to go hunting for his first gallery show, still decked out in his raggedy Andy gear. This young man, quite pimply-faced and poor-looking, wandered into the gallery and said, Would you like to look at my things? said David Mann, a dealer who received him. He looked like he was right off the boat. He was very poorly dressed, carried a torn portfolio under his arm. But what was in that portfolio was good enough to win Warhol a spot, at least in a two-man show, with another art world beginner, and with Warhol paying $100 towards costs in a space a friend of Warhol's actually described as a vanity gallery. Andy Warhol 15 drawings based on the writings of Truman Capote opened on June 16, 1952 at the Hugo Gallery in Manhattan. The young artist's name, seen in the art world for the first time and played big on the invitation, was being aligned with one of the few famous gays on the scene. Warhol claimed that he had in fact made the drawings to attract the interest of Capote when he first cold called him, which must have already been happening that spring. Although Capote showed no interest in seeing the pictures, his mother, Warhol, his mother, Warhol claimed, was intrigued enough to invite the artist up for their first meeting in their flat. Once the exhibition opened, it's supposed to have pulled in both Capote and his mother, who apparently liked the work. David Mann said that Capote had actually hoped that his, public, that his publisher would use the drawings to illustrate future editions of a book, Other Voices. The exhibition ran for only three weeks as a last-minute add-on to the slow tail end of the spring season, whereas Warhol had actually hoped for a slot the following winter. Worse, instead of being in the main space, it got stuck in a back room rung by a bookshop upstairs. No sales came out of it. It also got panned. But all those negatives were outweighed by the surprising prominence of the venue that the rookie artist had managed to nab, which was better than any of the spaces Warhol showed in over the following decade. The Hugo Gallery, named after Madame Hugo, a.k.a. the Duchess of de Gramont, was an eight-year-old venture with a fine reputation. 
It sat perched upstairs in a townhouse on 55th Street, just doors away from the Winslow Bar, where Warhol often hung out. Its walls were covered in blue velvet, the perfect decadent background for Warhol's lausch work as well as for the antics of the gallery's founder, Alexander. He was a retired ballet dancer. One of some note in a flamboyant, flamboyant, <laughs> oh dear, flamboyantly out that as of late 2014, he was described as a big bang whose long-range queenie shockwaves are still vibrating. Marcel Duchamp was a fan, and the gallery was a favorite of the art dealers Eleanor Ward and Leo Castanelli, both of whom later represented Warhol, as Aeolus did again in 1987 when he gave Warhol his final show, just as he had given him his first. Aeolus claimed that he had first spotted Warhol on the street as an eccentric, accosting him and demanding that he visit the gallery with his portfolio. Seeing it, Aeolus he supposed to have, but probably didn't, Dear sir, till this day you are a shoe designer. As of this moment, you have to start working on your own one-man show at the Hugo Gallery. Warhol would already have recognized the gallery as a haven for big-name European modernists, such as Georges Brock, Max Ernst, and René Magritte, as well as for Warhol's gay hero, Jean Cocacto and Pavel Tissonneau. It also showed outsider artists and their close kin, such as Joseph Cornell, who Warhol knew from his Pittsburgh showings at Outlines and then later through a mutual friend. The New York Sun had given big play to the Hugo's notoriously extravagant group show called Blood Flames, describing it as the extreme of the extreme, designed to puzzle the world and succeeding perf- perfectly. What, with that, the show's Times review ran under the headline Modernist Rampant. Nothing could have gotten Warhol more excited than a gallery with a reputation like that. We don't know much about the pictures Warhol included in his Capote show, except that they were blotted line drawings with washes of color. The exhibition garnered two tiny reviews, both fairly negative. Their descriptions made clear that some, at least of the new drawings, had the sly sex appeal of Warhol's pictures of beautiful boys from the same era. According to the review in Art News, Warhol drawings were full of boys, tomboys, and butterflies done in pale outline, splashed with magenta or violet, and they compared badly to his gallery mate's more viral pictures rendered in strong, free black lines that rendered subjects such as smug cats prowling and strutting their stuff. Maybe Warhol went on to circulate his own feline drawings after seeing the reception the cats had won for his rival. For the Art Digest critic, Warhol's fragile impressions were less impressive altogether than the other Hugo artists' sprawling, posturing, neoclassical, Picassoi drawings. Warhol's images, he said, had an air of carefully studied perversity that recalled Beardsley, DeMuth, and Cacato, all of whom were homophobic code, of course, for the gay content and manner of Warhol's images. The young artist kept copies of the clippings while choosing not to mention the show in a list of accomplishments, specifically as an artist that he sent back later that summer to Tech. But bad reviews were not enough then, or ever, to make Warhol actually change his tune or his art. He knew perfectly well that his gay content had avant-garde potential. He'd seen hints of the same from the Black Mountain crowd. He continued, almost naively, to bank on the same things, even if it took in another decade or more for them to get him anywhere. 
Warhol is often billed as a schemer and careerist, but it turns out he was willing to back the art he believed in, even when it wasn't to help help him out or his career. This was true right through the moment of his death. Around the time of the Hugo show, or maybe even a bit earlier, Warhol tried to use his homoerotic imagery to sidle into the Tanger Gallery, one of the city's most new, exciting co-op spaces. Its members included several former classmates, and there was a general tendency towards manly abstract expressionism, but also quite a bit of figuration in several female members. Joe Grohl, who was in the co-op, recalled Warhol approaching him with pictures of boys kissing that he was embarrassed by. As he said, he had been embarrassed by his roommate's unmanly manner. He and another member judged that Warhol's pictures weren't anything he wanted the gallery to be associated with. That rebuff didn't stop Warhol from trying the Tanager again the following winter, once again with the same kind of boy-on-boy imagery. This time he wandered into the gallery unannounced and showed his portfolio to a member named George Ortman. He didn't know who Warhol was, but six decades later still had a clear memory of the images being offered. Two male figures embracing. He also recalled telling that there was no way those would have been shown at the Tanager and that the gallery was mostly dedicated to abstraction anyway. Still not enough to dissuade Warhol, more than half a decade later, after Philip Perlstein had joined the Tanager and had showed a show that scored a strong Times review, with a big reproduction no less, Warhol bought one of the pieces and asked his old roommate to intercede for him once again. With his fellow members of the Tanager, Perlstein did his best, he said, but the portfolios, still with pictures of boys with their tongues in each other's mouths, met with overwhelming opposition from the gallery's other macho-oriented members. Warhol's subject, Pearlstein said, was totally unacceptable. His studio was next door. Only neutral subjects could work for the gallery. Warhol blamed his rejection on Pearlstein's half-hearted salesmanship. Pearlstein said the incident killed their friendship. Warhol would have to wait for national celebrity as a pop painter and then the beginning of his work in film before out art could win him a decent reception. In the spring of 1953, if he wanted to direct friends to the tiny apartment building at 242 Lexington Avenue on the west side of the road between 34th and 35th Streets, he told them to look for the seedy bar called Florence's, a.k.a. the pinup room, decorated with the pictures that gave it that name. Florence's was known for loose women, was so notorious that it earned a place in the hooker chapter of a book called New York and a moral guide for the jaded, tired, evil, non-conforming, corrupt, condemned, and the curious humans, and otherwise to underground Manhattan. (laughs) But it was also a joint where the cultured would go slumming. For a few months in 1955, Mabel Mercer appeared there singing Alex Wilder's modernist tunes. The place had even shown up in a Pepsi ad as a famous restaurant where stars would drink their favorite cola. It also happened to fill the basement of the building where Andy Warhol lived and worked for the last seven years of the 1950s. The slender building had originally been designed with a certain orderly elegance, but by the time Warhol moved in, it had fallen on hard times with cracked plaster and bare bulbs in its hallways. In April 1953, Warhol's two-year lease on 75th Street had been up and a rent increase was due, so once again he relied on Pittsburgh's connections to find a new flat. 
Before Warhol got it, the fourth, the fourth floor walk-up on Lexington had first housed Pearlstein and Dorothy Cantor for a few months just before their marriage, and then his college friend Leonard Kessler, who was breaking out as a book illustrator. Kessler kept the lease, and he sublet the apartment to Warhol on condition that he keep using one room as a studio, coming in from his new home in Queens during the day when Warhol was mostly out hustling contracts. Sometimes Kessler and Warhol would be there together and encouraged to verk, verk, verk by Julia Warhola, who would reward them with a lunch of old country sauerkraut stew. I make capusta, capusta make you feel good, she'd say, even on the hottest summer day. As far as she was concerned, her son's freelance career was just filling for the lack of a proper job in New York. She claimed he earned enough to live and no more. From his new place, Warhol now held only an eight-minute walk to his art director's at Condé Nest, a few minutes further to the Queen Parade in the upper 40s, and then just up a bit to the Hugo Gallery, Winslow's Bar, and Cafe Nicholson. His new neighborhood was called Murray Hill, and that was its phone prefix, too, changed by Warhol and some stationery to Murray Hell. For about a century, it had been a genteel residential quarter of mansions and townhouses, when Warhol moved into modern apartment buildings they were going up all around, one now stands where his building once did. The rent was just under $100, which Warhol's mother called very costly, but probably wasn't. She also complained she had to carry all their shopping up four flights of stairs. An upside of the new flat was that it was 40 blocks closer to her Greek Catholic church on East 13th Street. A new very modern home for the church on 50th Street was being built just when Warhol was in Murray Hill. Warhol's weekly donations helped put it up and Warhol was known to contribute well and even to bus her there. The, the apartment shared by the mother and son was a four-room railroad flat. It had a fireplace and elegant moldings taking up the entire top floor. They slept in a pair of small spaces at the back behind the kitchen on single bed mattresses on the floor. Other than one framed butterfly print by Warhol, the decor was sparse and a bit prim. Chenille bedspreads, some hooked rugs, a few felt pillows, and an old mandolin. At the other end of the apartment was a bright living room with a row of big windows onto the avenue. It functioned as Warhol's studio. One client who visited remembered the front space as like a bat cave, a funny room just filled with things like boxes and things and not a stick of furniture. And for a desk, he used a door, a door taken off a wall on two sawhorses. He was also working while he was there and he was sitting on a typewriter case, which was funny. Warhol's work table had a pair of big elbow lamps perched on one side and beside them, on top of an old stool, stood a small TV that was always on. Anyone helping Warhol would sit nearby at a proper drafting table, working with brushes that were so old they'd have three hairs, but he didn't want to buy new brushes, one, one of them said. Images would be traced from magazines. Life was a favorite, and then enlarged if necessary with an opaque projector. Once Warhol's commissions really took off, the mess was amazing. The studio floor was covered in drafts and flows of source images and original drawings, discarded once they'd been traced and blotted. They get a final touch in India ink from bottles knocked over by the studio's Siamese cats. There are still paw prints on some of the works done in the Lexington apartment. The cats went everywhere. No one had time to train them, recalled one frequent visitor. They left messes on the drafting table, in the bathtub, everywhere. 
Andy's poor mother was always mopping up after the cats. The beds had to be covered with plastic and the smell. These cats are the most famous roommates of Warhol's, although their precise number varies with every source. Warhol's first cat seems to have arrived in the summer of 1951 in the vermin-infested 75th Street apartment when his friend Tommy Jackson seems surprised to discover it there. I knew things were good, but I didn't know you had a pussy, Jackson wrote on one of his cards to Warhol. That pet probably the Tom Warhol had gone cross-eyed at the sound of nearby fire trucks, which sounds like a classic Warholian invention, except that the firehouse is still there on 75th Street, directly across the road from where Warhol lived. He was such an incredibly dumb, weird, and disordered-looking cat, remember one boyfriend of Warhol's. That Tom, named Sam, kept company with the famous Hester, who Warhol proud to have perched on his shoulder as he fulfilled his first contracts in that tiny flat. She was responsible for Warhol's Mahalsian difficulties. There were almost certainly not 25 Warholian felines, even since there were only 17 on view, even in Warhol's famous 25 cats named Sam and One Blue Pussy, the chapbook title gave rise to that now mythic number. The feline overpopulation on Lexington lasted a few years at most, and was only sometimes as insane as people have said. The tiny biographies Warhol supplied to the contributors page of Interiors magazine go from 8 cats in 1953 to 10 in 1954, and by early 1958 he's telling the readers of American Girl that his Siamese count was up to 17 and never mentioned by several Warhol friends, but has since fallen to three. One friend, and sometimes art assistant, said he'd heard about nine previous Sams. Warhol practiced thrift in naming, although by the time he'd, arra- he'd arrived in late 1957, the number was already down to two. Apparently, the original Sam and Hester, Warhol's idea of feline birth control, was to wrap an old sweater around Hester's loins, he liked to say that he got her from Gloria Swanson, but his brother mentioned Swanson's maid instead, with neither one explaining how this early movie star connection came about. Hester was a serious biter, but after she died, Warholus still mourned her in a book called Holy Cats by Andy Warhol's mother, with a dedication to my little Hester who left for pussy heaven. That book, too, failed to sell. Three decades later, when Warhol included a heartfelt mention of Hester's death in his diaries, it feels as through the book and the tears were actually his. That's when I gave up caring, he said. There are actually moments when Warhol comes off as anti-cat. Mother and son seem to have had the cockamamie idea that there were money in them and their pride of felines. Although the cats were famously neurotic, the product of incest within incest, Warhol had hoped to get $10 per kitten a tidy sum for a cat in the 1950s, and he did sell at least a few. Mostly, however, the decline in Warhol's feline population over the course of the 50s seems to have been due to a constant outflow of kittens that Warhol gave away as gifts. Welcome or not, but mentioned by almost every friend from that era, as well as by clients and bear acquaintances, Warhol knew each of her charges on site. That's the good Sam, that's the bad Sam, that's the dumb Sam, and she was still living with one of the earliest Sams as late as 1969, when a vet bill lists him as feline Siamese uh, M20 years Sam. But the cats may have been on their best and least. In the scores of illustrations her son did of them, 
They were his most consistent muses, or meowses, of the 1950s. And so often, with his cats, Warhol was plugging into the surrounding culture. Cats, and especially Siamese, were in fashion around then. Already in 1949 in Pittsburgh, Horn's department store had given big play to a brand new cat book by the children's illustrator Tony Palazzo. And towards the end of the 1950s, Warhol owns 25 cats named Sam, was copying its imagery from a couple of feline photo books, one of which was actually all about a cat named Sam. In his early work, Warhol risked looking derivative when he borrowed. He once actually presented someone else's drawings as his and got caught. His eureka came a decade later when he figured out that by copying his models even more faithfully and overtly, he could turn the, vi- the vice of, deriver- of devoration into appropriation. A Campbell suit by Warhol looked almost exactly like the company's cans, and that actually let it mean something very new in the culture of modern art. Warhol's move to Lexington Avenue coincided with a step up in his love life. His new paramour was a 20-year-old someone from Iowa named Carlton, Alfred Willers. Warhol insisted on calling him Alfred and enjoyed the fact that this gave them the same initials. Willers had moved to New York in the summer of 1953 and got a job clerking in the vast picture collection of the New York Public Library. New Yorkers trawled and still travel through for images of any kind under the sum, which librarians had clipped out of every kind of publication. The great Joseph Cornell was a regular. He was invited to screen his art films there, and so was his fan, Andy Warhol, who mimed the collection for images to base his drawings on. Oh, you just go to the public library and take out as much as you want, Warhol told a friend, and you just say you lost them or that they were burned, and you only have to pay two cents a picture. Willers, who assisted the head of the picture collection, remembered Warhol paid hundreds of dollars in fines, but never being barred from further borrowing, even by the end of the decade, the library's special investigator was coming after him. Warhol made the first move in their relationship inviting Willers to a very elegant communal picnic held at night at Central Park. They were close for the next few years, consuming high culture together. They were close. They would do the galleries. Andy wanted to know what was going on and where he might show his own art. Hone out at literary places, such as Cafe Nicholson, attend any number of poetry meetings, and go to the theater. A favorite of Warhol's to see such sober fare as St. of Bleecker Street, of Bleecker Street. Like 80 to 90% of the gay world, they went and keep track at the New York Ballet, where Willers remembers had innate taste not something he learned or faked. Warhol and Willers were intimate. It's something even said that Willers was the artist's very first lover, mostly because Warhol once claimed he was a virgin until he was 25, although virginity is always a complicated concept, and 25 years is the kind of round number that should always be suspect. Whether Warhol was virginal or not, he was clearly lousy in bed, as his friend Willers described, and he was deemed by lovers for the rest of his life. He was certainly not passionate. He was more passionate about food and eating, said Willers. Or rather, as Willers clarified, his boyfriend's passion was for the beautiful people who owned and frequented certain restaurants. Even after much coaxing, Willers said Warhol could barely barely manage intimacy, not so surprising given the shame and danger that came with gay sex during all of Warhol's youth in Pittsburgh. 
Warhol was better at looking than touching, and maybe best at looking when there was art involved. He got Willard to pose for him nude, like Truman Capote, lying down, for a vast series of canvases where he scaled his blotted line process to painting size. Only one of dozens of Willard's pictures seems to have survived, plus a few other early examples of similar blottings onto canvas that prove it's a technique and doesn't really hold up to scale. Warhol was right to drop it. Willers had given an unusual insight into Warhol's mental life. He said every now and then, in an intimate moment when they were cuddling, Warhol would cry. He'd tell Willers that he'd been thinking about something sad from his past, but it seems just as likely that Warhol had a lifelong depression streak that few got to see, unless they looked closely at his art, which was often had a plaguey note. As an at least occasional bedmate of Warhol's, Willers was one of the last friends to see Warhol's own hair, or what little there was left of it. We'd go to nice dinner parties with rather nice, prestigious couples, and he wouldn't take his hat off. He wouldn't even take his cap off in the theater. One day I said, Andy, why don't you get a hairpiece or something? He actually did. He went to some place and got a very nice, well-matched hairpiece. He looked great in it. It looked like his real hair. In that sexy photo of Warhol in bed, he's got a shock of hair that's suspiciously thicker and darker than in pictures from a few years before. Thanks to Willers, we get lovely details of Warhol's daily life in the mid-1950s. The artist got up late and worked into the wee hours on a diet of sweets and eclairs, gulped down the moment he got them home. He liked ice cream, and that got him through the night sometimes. Over the next decade, his papers include piles of dessert recipes, especially the deliciously pink ones from Colette French Pastries of chocolate cake fame. There are very few for groceries. Warhol worried about getting fat, and within a few years, he was going to a weight loss club. For a while, he decided to restrict his diet to chocolate and newly fashionable avocados, the semi-tropical fruit with the rich, nutty flavor that the Times was still explaining to its readers the summer that Warhol had moved to Lexington Avenue. Warhol would mash up her son's alligator pear and serve it in a 10-cent Woolworth coffee cup, cursing out her son in Czechoslovakian the whole time. Willers made almost nightly visits to Warhol's new apartment on Lexington, and Otto Fenn took lovely, tender photos of the two in bed. Willers entirely naked and, War- and Warhol armored in pants and dress shirt and wool vest. A Siamese cat made it a menage a trois. Warhol was fond of her son's new friend. The two went to an Easter basket blessing at her church, and she cried a few years later when Willers didn't invite her to celebrate his short-lived marriage to a woman. On Lexington, Willers helped his workaholic boyfriend complete the never-ending assignments that he had due and that they were already making him piles of money. As Warhol worked, he never stopped watching TV, Willers remembered, evoking Warhol's childhood multitasking. Sometimes he'd have the TV on and the record player on, and he'd be working in the midst of all of this. The records were musical comedies playing on endless repeat wherever and whenever Warhol was working. In the 1960s, musicals were replaced by rock and roll and R&B tunes and opera, also played to death. I can remember hearing The Golden Apple a thousand times, Willers said, referring to a 1954 musical with high cultural aspirations. The music was by a classical composer and the book set to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey in small-town America circa 1910. 
The public stayed away in droves, even though the show was a hit with the critics and New York elites, among whom at this point Warhol clearly meant to be counted. And of course, this collaboration of high and low genres became central to what his own art was about. The combination was there also in the television washings Willard mentioned, back when Warhol began, began his infatuation with TV, which included him hunting for commercial assignments from the networks. The medium wasn't the mass cultural boob tube it became later. Like the LP, broadcast television began life as a prestige medium. A college professor of Warhol's had quoted the August modernist Virgil Thomason on television's promise as a new audiovisual form. At, ni- at NBC in 1951, a year when Warhol was illustrating their promotions, executives launched Operation Frontal Lobes to encourage programming that would enlighten the network's viewers. CBS, ran by the MoMA board member William S. Paley, was known as the Tiffany Network because of its elite programming. To sing its praises, Warhol's titles for a 1953 drama were included in an article about how the network was commissioning well-known artists to do work for it, proving yet again that Warhol's 1950 illustrations were considered elite products, far removed from everyday commercial art, such as soup can labels. When Warhol himself decided to produce an actual TV program in the 70s and 80s, it was with memories of that earlier moment when it was a mass medium that held fine art promise. His idea of suitable content for an MTV episode included segments on avant-garde ballet and Mozart opera, followed by the gay actor Ian McGillan reading the most explicit of Shakespeare's homoerotic sonnets. The Way of the World, an urban comedy by William Congreve that premiered in 1700, The Three Sisters in the Cherry Orchard, dense dramas that Anton Chekhov wrote two centuries later, Bertolt Brecht's Good Women of Szechuan, Caucasian Chalk Circle, and Fear and Misery of the Third, all written by the radical playwright from the Nazis, who was in flight from the Nazis, sorry. This was a substantial culture that Andy Warhol was bathing in during the first years of success in New York. However, cat mad he might also have been. Beginning around Labor Day of 1953, on the top floor of a 12th Street townhouse in the heart of Greenwich Village, a little circle of theatrical types got regular glimpses of Warhol's more cerebral appetites. Thanks to his tech friends, George Clobbert and Art and Louis Eloise, she'd have professional acting experience at Pittsburgh, Warhol was introduced to a not-so-secret society of ad agency thespians who met to hold readings of plays that weren't likely to be seen on stage. McCarthyism was in full spring, was in full swing, and for this gain of left-leaning cultural, digging into the, the theatrical radicalism of an early era was a form of resistance to the dull, deadening time in America, said Burt Green, an art director and sometimes playwright who helped launch the theatrical soirees. We were always interested in the outrageous. When we first started out, it was like light in the wilderness. Readings were held every Monday night in Green's big apartment, but before long, those evolved into private weekend performances acted out in the round, the cutting-edge way to stage plays at the time. Outsiders began to show up. Extra chairs were rented, as were placed in a Greenwich Village paper. A flyer by Warhol was pinned up. We were the very beginning of off-Broadway, said Green. Thus did Warhol become one of the self-proclaimed 12th Street players, although not exactly the best of them. 
He was a very bad reader and a very bad actor. He had no voice. He had no ability to project at all, said Green. It was a big public embarrassment to not be able to read in front of all of these other people, but he wasn't abashed at all. Thirty years later, when he was a celebrity with his own TV show, outtakes show him still flubbing almost every line, even with cue cards, and still mostly unfazed by the failure. Warhol, the failed actor, added to the group's morale anyway. He gives sweet little presents to his playmates, a hollowed-out walnut that looks like he's stuffed with a tiny doll, a Mickey Mouse watch, drawings with messages like, I'm happy to be here tonight, and it didn't take long for everyone, including Warhol, to realize that he could make a more practical contribution by designing sets for the new plays some of the troops members were writing. Using the most minimal means, photographer's seamless paper, and a pot of India ink, Warhol pulls together evocations of the show's subjects. For one production, he designed a modernistic restaurant with a paper piano and a wall of crude portraits that mimic the caricatures at Sardi's, the Broadway actors hang out, right down to their frames. It was a very two-dimensional, very unrealistic, very stylized, Green said, but leaving all the seams showing in their productions, the troupe aimed for the self-conscious artif of Breck. Their interest in Brechtian alienation bore a fruit a decade later when Warhol perfected his deadpan pop works, which left the mechanisms of their making on view. He even admitted a knowledge of Brecht in his first major statement on pop. When it came to Warhol's design work with the 12 Street Players, you could say he was a victim of his own success. After less than a year, things were going so well at Green's place that the troupe decided to up its game, with coaches brought in to teach voice and blocking. That meant the whole affair was becoming too serious and professional for Warhol, who just wanted to read and listen. By February 1954, the 12 street players had a spot in a semi-professional weekend at the Elite National Arts Club, putting on the plays Warhol had designed. By August, the ensemble rechristened Theater 12 had moved on to decent reviews in a real off-Broadway playhouse, and Warhol had drifted away. And that is the end of the chapter for the day. So, um, you know, I was just thinking it's kind of crazy. Remember at the beginning, he had made all those paintings and drawings and things for, uh, for his show about Truman Capote after he stalked him. Remember last week? I don't know, just in case you didn't listen to the episode last week, I think that was the one where he had talked about how he'd been hiding in the bushes and he would come in at uh, Truman Capote's house and talk to his mom. <laughs> so he had been stalking him. And even these few years later, his first art show is based on Truman Capote. So I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> But um, anyways, thank you guys so much for tuning in. And I also just realized as well that the whole time I've been recording this, the heater by me has been on. So I don't know if you can hear that or not. But if so, I apologize. I'll try to uh, be more mindful of that. But hope you all take care and hope you have a great weekend. Thanks again. Bye.